again. This is Thinking Transportation, a podcast about how we get ourselves and our stuff from one place to another, and all the implications of what happens in between those places. I'm your host, Bernie Fetty, Editor-at-Large at the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. And today, I'm delighted to be visiting with my boss. Greg Winfrey is the Agency Director here at TTI. He's also a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Transportation. Having worked in those very different but closely related fields, the world of public policy and transportation and then in research, he probably has some unique observations to share, especially with the changing of the guard that we're still adjusting to. Greg, we know you're a pretty busy guy without a lot of spare time, so thanks for sharing some of that with us today. Well, thanks so much, Bernie. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. By the way, happy birthday. I appreciate that as well. The years keep flying by. One more trip around the sun, and if it was on social media, it must be true, right? Well, you know, that's where all of the best information comes from. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So it's been about four years now since you finished your last gig before your current one when you were at USDOT, Assistant Secretary of Transportation. What do you think has changed the most in terms of transportation policy and practice? You know, many things have changed. Many haven't. One thing I think that kind of lost steam or at least lost direction was a focus on investment in infrastructure. You remember in the previous administration put out their infrastructure plan. It had a lot of non-infrastructure elements to it. So it wasn't a truly dedicated infrastructure plan. And that caused a lot of consternation in Washington about how to get that right. And I think the roads and bridges aspect uh, kind of got put on the on the side burner, although they remained important. So uh, there's still an undercurrent of an effort to resuscitate that in Washington. I remain hopeful that we'll see some legislation coming out of Washington that uh, puts significant investment into transportation infrastructure, because uh, I think that really is an area that is in need of attention, what with the declining revenues being generated by the highway trust fund from the gas tax, et cetera. Another area uh, that has changed dramatically uh, at the Department of Transportation has to do with connected vehicle technologies. When I was in Washington, connected vehicles were the technologies that allowed vehicles to talk to one another so that you had better situational awareness in order to avoid crashes and conflict between vehicles, as well as getting uh, convenience and road weather advanced warnings or advanced notice. Uh, But the radio frequency allocation from the FCC that was allotted to allow for connected vehicle technologies uh, has been under threat largely since uh, 2014 when Google came out with the self-driving car and had statements that they wouldn't need to rely upon connected vehicle technologies and that their rolling computer would have all of the answers uh, in every driving scenario. Uh, As the years went on, self-driving technology developers realized that having the ability to be connected with others in uh, the flow of transportation or in traffic would be of benefit. It was a sensor that they could add that would improve uh, the operational capabilities of their vehicles. So that argument went away, but the threats against 
uh, the spectrum that had been allocated continued as the Wi-Fi industry was seeking more real estate on the radio frequency spectrum so that they could have a contiguous pathway for the throughput of data that wireless devices utilize and capitalize upon. So literally, they wanted you to get your Hulu faster. They wanted you to get your Netflix faster. Uh, When I was a DOT, we used to say we don't want people being entertained to death. But that's where we are. Uh, It remains a contentious issue in Washington. And it looks as if you're figuring out which horse is winning the race thus far. I would say it's certainly leaning toward uh, Wi-Fi getting their wishes and getting 45 of the 75 megahertz that have been allocated to transportation safety. Okay. On the other side of that coin, does anything come to mind in terms of what seems to have not changed at all since you were there? So things that haven't changed, I would certainly say... The mission of the department remains strong. Uh, A way to think about, particularly DOT, is there is a strong cadre of career employees, and those are the folks who, by definition, spend their careers uh, at agencies like DOT, but they're also the custodians of the corporate history and knowledge and the ability to pass that information from generation to generation And then you have the political appointees who come in almost episodically. They're attached to an administration, so they're going to be there uh, at a max eight years. Um, So they're the ones who need to rely upon the expertise that the career staff has built. So the mission that's carried forward by the career uh, uh, folks at at USDOT remains the same. They remain committed uh, to what they do to ensure the safest and most efficient transportation system for the American uh, traveling public. So certainly that mission and that dedication for the organizational mission hasn't changed. What hasn't changed, it sounds like, is the stability of the organization in general. I would say that that's a definite yes. You do get some, uh, when the political appointees come on board, they of course are aligned with Uh, the priorities of the administration. So there'll be some tweaking around the edges, but it's fair to say that the mission of federal highways is well-defined, the mission of FAA, the mission of the Maritime Administration, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, NHTSA, uh, those mission areas have been well-defined and are the province of those operating uh, administrations. So it sounds like we can at least count on some measure of continuity. Absolutely. Fair to say? For sure. When I was getting ready for our conversation today, Greg, I did just a little bit of online searching and noticed that the first time that we had the appointment of a Secretary of Transportation was in 1967. And since then, the department's been led by a fairly diverse collection of people, both men and women. African-American, Asian, Hispanic, Japanese heritage, and now the first LGBT American. And I'm just wondering, does that distinction tell us anything? Is diversity somehow more relevant in the context of transportation? You know, that's a a keen observation and and a great question. You know, you probably heard me say out on the uh, speaking circuit that transportation is the circulatory system of really our our economy and our American way of life. And it 
you know, much like the circulatory system in the human body, if you get an occlusion on any particular artery, you have a problem, right? So these are issues that hit the American public at all levels, regardless of if you're a, a personal vehicle owner or if you're a transit rider, these issues matter. And these are literally where the rubber hits the road. Now, when I worked at DOT, uh, Deputy Secretary John Pocari used to always say, there are no Republican or Democratic potholes. People mm-hmm. call their legislator's office. They want solutions. They want them now. And those are the kinds of low-hanging fruit that politicians should be able or expected to deliver on. Right. So these are fundamental matters for the movement of people, data, and goods in the U.S., and there's no particular group that owns it any greater than any other. So since that's the case, and since the need to connect with constituents and constituencies around the country on these issues, um, you need to be reflective of who you're representing in this Mm -hmm. most fundamental of agencies. So I think that's why you see such a widespread of talent that has led the department to a person. They're all recognized as motivational leaders. They may not be transportation experts. They will be by the time they leave. But more importantly, they're able to coalition build, not just internally at DOT, but across government with organizations like TRB and ITS America and ITE. So it really is almost a a pastoral kind of leadership approach to the department and its mission and and its ability to bring parties together for a common goal and common good. And I know we're talking about things at the federal level, but it sounds like what you're saying can easily be applied to state, local, in the context of transportation too, right? It can, but state and local tends to get a bit more targeted or there may be issues that are important to the state that have not migrated to the federal level or maybe even anathema to the federal level. Um, You know, some of the pushback on bike and ped access and complete streets thinking, you hear some criticisms. I even testified uh, before the Senate yesterday and received a question about whether or not there's been any analysis into the cost-benefit ratio of towards zero deaths. There was a recognition that it started as a federal initiative that migrated down to the states. And there was a question that while we certainly don't want anyone to die on our roadways, at what economic expense is this being undertaken? So again, it depends on uh, the states, it depends on the legislatures, it depends on what their constituents are feeding back. So, So the perspectives of the individual states will reflect their individual realities. What about diversity in terms of transportation? Wondering about your thoughts on what that topic has come to mean, what it's come to encompass since the days when transportation was basically highway only, and and maybe how you see that evolution unfolding more in the years ahead. Well, it's probably a two-part answer to that question. The first part would be there is more of a focus in transportation decision-making impacting disadvantaged or minority communities. Uh, There's a great book called The Big Roads that talks about how highway 
interstate placement decisions were made back in the uh, 50s when you literally had interstates going through the middle of black and brown neighborhoods and bisecting them with no way to get from one side to the other. These are communities that had been historic. So it caused community collapse. So you're hearing more about equity in transportation now. And it's important that that conversation is going on, not just from the infrastructure building perspective, but as we look at the rollout of advanced technologies to improve mobility. Because really, that's that's what the term is nowadays. Transportation uh, is a bit of an acronym that focuses on the uh, ten operating administrations, but it is a seamless, as seamless as possible, uh, cohesive uh, system of systems, and they all interconnect and interrelate. So that's why it's now in a focus on mobility. But looking at mobility, and particularly with respect to electrification and personal mobility vehicles being more available and the shared economy, the equity questions become, well, why is Uber circulating in the more affluent neighborhood and difficult to uh, get service in disadvantaged communities? You know, who's making the decisions on where bike share goes or scooter share? You know, who's paying attention to the unique issues in urban environments with respect to accommodating pedestrians and bikes and how does that work uh, in disadvantaged communities and those sorts of things. How do, how do you improve transit service for those that don't have the ability uh, or the means or the wherewithal to have their own vehicles to get back and forth and to and fro to work and grocery, et cetera. So from a diversity perspective on how transportation impacts communities, That's a conversation that has uh, grown significantly over time with respect to the diversity of the mix of operating administration thought. That's a great question because there was a challenge, certainly when I was at DOT, of where does bike ped fall? Is that a NHTSA responsibility? Is that a federal highways responsibility? Uh, Do we need to create a new office that focuses on uh, personal mobility and uh, light mobility for short distance travel. So we looked at, you know, since it was the highway only years, a lot has moved around. Although the docket at DOT hasn't changed, the issues with Federal Motor Carrier and NHTSA haven't changed. Organizations have been created to specially focus on those that were born out of Federal Highway's mission as it became more specialized. So I think we'll continue to see that. We're going to need to figure out where does low-altitude transportation fit? Is it within the FAA mission, or is there a need for a separate focus? And when you say low uh, elevation, we're talking about unmanned vehicles, drones? Yes, drones, delivery drones, and even the people-mover drones that companies like Uber Elevate and and others are exploring. From an FAA perspective, you know, they control access to the national airspace, of course, in partnership with uh, the military. But national airspace starts at about 500 feet. So from 499 down, who's really responsible for that? There's going to be a need for a complex traffic management system. You know, what's that Mm going to look like to have four-dimensional traffic management? Um, So those are challenges that are near-term you know, as we start to look at Amazon and others uh, champing at the bit to get drone deliveries, 
others looking at how do I move people from point A to point B in that same airspace, along with general aviation that already operates there, along with medevac helicopters, news helicopters. You know, there's a lot of activity already in the 499 feet and down space, and it needs to be deconflicted before you turn on the switch and allow access to, uh, you know, what otherwise looks like just open sky. We've come a pretty long way since the highway-only days, right? We have. You mentioned a little while ago how there's no such thing as a partisan pothole. Mm-hmm. Of course, depending on who you talk to, some people believe, a lot of people believe that our nation has become very divided. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, to what extent, if any, can transportation be one of those rare areas of public policy that might offer a path to common purpose and shared aspirations? You know, that's an interesting way to look at it. And I would like to say that the answer is yes. It would be kind of a lodestone where those ideas could carry forward. But I think the truth of the matter is issues in and around transportation that have common goal, common purpose are going to be limited to that realm and issues that fall in other areas or with or, or under other agencies that have historically or recently been contentious will remain so. So it's um, a bit disappointing to have to admit that, but I really think that's where this will, will fall out. And there's not always unanimity in the execution of the transportation mission. You know, there's still a lot of not in right. my backyard. Yeah, uh, There's still a lot of uh, what are the environmental impacts for uh, decisions that are made. Don't get me wrong, there, there is still controversy in how the transportation mission is executed, but more often than not, uh, there's commonality because uh, the constituents and their legislators understand that getting from point A to point B is extraordinarily important. And in order to accommodate that, you know, we need to shake hands across the aisle and, and, and move the agenda forward. The uh, American Society of Civil Engineers report card on America's infrastructure came out recently. Now and then, we have a big wake-up call when it comes to transportation infrastructure, like we had when the I-35 bridge collapsed in Minnesota 13 years ago. When you look at our current conditions, and the trends related to America's transportation infrastructure. Is there anything that keeps you up at night? You know, state of good repair writ large remains problematic. So the grade won't fluctuate much. And y'all will remember this from when you were in a formative school. One teacher's B may be another teacher's D. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so we're failing our nation. We're failing to keep up the basic infrastructure that was put in in the 50s that's already overtaxed to keep it in a state of good repair. So an I-35 is a catastrophic event. It's what happens when the dollars and cents aren't allocated for routine maintenance. You you don't get to the catastrophic problems unless routine maintenance has been overlooked. So the problems that we're seeing only get worse over time. And now we're four more years in without a significant infusion of cash to focus on it or a significant technological improvement. So it's it's a big problem. And it's a big problem in a suite of big problems. Right. Uh, 
especially considering uh, being a little over a year into a pandemic, for instance. That's right. But if anything keeps me up at night, it's the fact that the system, top to bottom, has not received the attention that it needs, not deserves, that it needs over time. And those underlying issues are only getting worse. My last question for you, though, I have to preface by telling listeners that Greg is somebody who appreciates motorcycle riding, and he (laughs) also appreciates his chihuahua. For sure. Yeah, who is named Maya. Shortly after Greg came to work at TTI, I saw a delightful photo of him on his motorcycle with a sling over his shoulders (laughs) that has a pouch just big enough for Maya to fit into <laughs> that photo of you, Greg, your hog and your dog. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, made, made me think of how transportation, it's always had an element to it that was more than just the practical task of showing up someplace on time out of obligation or need. And that's something that a lot of us have felt, especially during a pandemic, when, when we just felt the need to get out and about for nothing more than that, mm-hmm. just getting out and about. I wonder if that's something you've thought about and how we need to prepare for and incorporate that element in how we think about transportation. Well, there's a certain tension there. We're blessed to live in a country where we've got significant automotive choices that you can align and match to your personality as well as the basic transportation needs. Uh, That's not necessarily the case in other countries around the world. In the 80s, when I was in college, uh, I lived in Budapest, Hungary, and there was an awful Soviet car called the Trabant. It was a two-stroke, blue smoke blowing. It looked like an animal cracker box with wheels. Wow. And um, you couldn't tell model years uh, other than vehicle color you probably couldn't find your car in a lineup. So it was, a, at least from you know the, the spoiled American perspective, a drab and uninviting means of transportation. But again, it, it met the basic need for many of the uh, citizens of, of that country. So we're also blessed with open roads, traffic congestion notwithstanding. And then we've got the, here in Texas, cultural driver of one man, one truck. So we have a lot of folks who have grown accustomed to having their vehicle with their music. So it it becomes an extension of comfort expectations. uh, And that's why you never really saw a significant uptake. You heard a lot of talk about carpooling. But other than examples that are somewhat scattered, uh, thinking of Washington, D.C., with the slug lines where people will carpool in order to avoid sitting in uh, substantial traffic around the beltway, But those kinds of of shared experiences are rare. And I would even point out that Uber and Lyft started as a means of democratizing transportation where, Bernie, you would say, hey, I'm heading to the Trader Joe's. I live here. This is the pathway I'm taking. Anybody want to catch a ride and chip in for the gas? And presumably two or three other folks would say, yeah, I'll join you. But it turned into single occupant uh, with a driver. But it didn't do much uh, to improve traffic congestion or really encourage true sharing in this so-called shared economy. So all of those cultural factors and comfort factors conspire to keep a lot of cars on the road. Even if we're talking about an automated vehicle future, 20 years from now, when you can go to your dealer and buy a self-driving car, 
we need to start thinking about what incentives can be built in so that people will indeed share the ride and cut down on roadway congestion and all of the attendant uh, factors that idling vehicles create from a climate change perspective. So that's why I'm saying there's a lot to unpack and we're at a tension point where giving up what we've grown accustomed to and find culturally desirable can match what the future will dictate from a congestion management, climate change, state of good repair, and, and a bunch of other factors that transportation is considering now, but has not yet come up with policy solutions. And I remember from another conversation that we had some months ago, talking about the eventual proliferation of self-driving cars, connected cars. And the point that you were making was, even whenever those vehicles come to dominate the highway landscape for us, you're still going to have a lot of people who want to drive their 57 Chevys. Yeah. And, and you, know, you may recall, I used to call it the mosh pit when you've got yeah. 57 Chevys and, and uh, cars from the 80s and 90s. And so you'll have analog cars merging and interacting with digital cars. And we need to figure out a communications platform that can deconflict that or other policies that can deconflict it. So that's why you hear things about dedicated lanes for automated vehicles and other travel pathways where they can uh, traverse without the inattentive human causing an issue. Kind of brings us back to the concept of diversity. It does. Uh, a whole additional level of diversity just in terms of the mix on the roads. That's for sure. Greg Winfried, Agency Director at the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. Thank you, sir. This has been fun. Well, it's been a great pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity to sit and visit and have a nice fireside chat. Thank you, sir. Take care now. In the policy and practice of transportation in America, some things have changed since the USDOT was established half a century ago. Others have remained constant, as Greg Winfrey just helped us understand. Our need for safe and reliable transportation is simple and it's immutable. But the ways in which we go about providing it are not. Whether we're talking modal, cultural, environmental, technological, or some other context, moving people and goods, and all the data that goes with them, is increasingly complex and constantly evolving. More than ever, transportation truly touches every aspect of our lives. Thank you for listening to Thinking Transportation. We hope you'll subscribe and share. And we hope you'll check in with us again next time when we talk with Edith Arambula Mercado and Charles Gerganis, both civil engineers at TTI and experts in transportation infrastructure, the same infrastructure that recently got some rather unflattering grades from the American Society of Civil Engineers. Thinking Transportation is a production of the Texas A&M Transportation Institute, a member of the Texas A&M University System. The show is edited and produced by Chris Porto. I'm your host and writer, Bernie Fetty. Thanks again. See you next time.